Welcome to Pacific Northwest Coffee and Conversation, a bi-weekly podcast where we speak with leaders in the Pacific Northwest fighting hate and advancing social justice. I'm Mary Cypers, Regional Director of ADL Pacific Northwest. In this episode, I have the joy of speaking with Angela Dunleavy, the CEO of Fair Start. Welcome, Angela, to today's show. Let's get started. Hi, Angela. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yes. Let's dive right in. I'd love to learn more about your early life. I read that you're a native Pacific Northwesterner who grew up in a small town in Eastern Oregon. How did your early upbringing shape your path to today? I think about this all the time. And sometimes I think that my early life continues to evolve where I am today. And so I grew up in a very small town in Eastern Oregon, very politically conservative community, very gender normed. And I grew up, I'm a first generation college graduate. My dad's side of the family was in the cattle business. My mom's side of the business was in the farming. I don't know if you call it business, but they were farmers. And I grew up in a household that was sometimes relatively unstable, often not super financially stable, but within the confines of this small town, one of the earliest impressions that I had that led me to where I am now is just the fact that two things, actually there are two things. One is just, there was no great expectation that anyone would leave said town. Maybe you would go away to a college somewhat close by and get like a nursing degree and then come back. Like that was like winning, but I think it was just as easily expected that I would work at the local Safeway or maybe the bank. And There just wasn't that emphasis on dreaming big or really thinking about what you can do to leverage your potential. And then I think the probably the more direct thing that has gotten me to where I am as far as being fairly politically active, really engaged in policy solutions about a variety of things is the fact that when I was growing up, there was no such thing really as comprehensive sex education. And in my early 20s, I thought back on this, that when I was a teenager looking to get birth control. I had to go to the local health department. And chances were that one of my mom's friends worked there. And so it wasn't really, there was such an access issue to contraception and sexual education that when I became a young adult, I really found myself deeply dedicated to the mission at Planned Parenthood and the great work that they do, just providing all those resources that kids like me just did not get, uh, have access to any of that education. And so I think that that sort of spurred this desire to really get in the mix, get involved. I lobbied as an intern in Olympia doing comprehensive sex education down there for a period of time and became a donor and then just became involved. And I think that as things have entered into my life that have been really meaningful and impacted me, I do often think about like, how would this impact the youth in this town that I grew up in. And then more recently and deeply, how does this impact people who don't look like me? How does this impact our black indigenous and brown friends and neighbors? And I think that that really speaks to some of those early memories. I think something they said ties in really well with the next question. When did that kind of curiosity or interest in social justice start to form? Because it's clear that you had experiences from a young age that maybe at a later date you were able to digest and reflect on where you realized 
that maybe you would want to make a change on behalf of your community for others in your position. But how did you arrive at this curiosity and passion for service to others and bettering the community? I think that really the pivot point in my life was in 2011. I was pregnant with twins who were unfortunately stillborn. And during the time that I was in my pregnancy, I got such incredible care here in Seattle. And it, again, I have thought back to like, oh my gosh, there are so many people in this country, not even in the state or my hometown, but there's so many people in this country who if they had the diagnosis that I have, like they wouldn't even know where to go or what to do. And I think that that really sparked something in me that was like, I need to do something meaningful that helps other people. And after I lost the twins, I got really involved in maternal fetal research and fundraising around research in that area. And then as I started just existing in my everyday life in Seattle and, you know, having been in the restaurant industry prior to Fair Start and spending a lot of time seeing some of the behavioral health and addiction issues that existed even, and frankly, we had at the time, I know that we had an employee at one time who was experiencing homelessness. And it just sort of was really a migration into from one issue to another, but all really centered around people and their lives and hoping to, to better their lives. And so, you know, that took me from fetal medicine research to really wanting to get involved in areas around homelessness and poverty and addiction areas in Seattle and joined the board at United Way, was involved in some frontline outreach organizations in town. And all of that, I think, positioned me to really transition careers into Fair Start. Was there a certain moment you had where you realized that you could marry two things that you really loved, like your passion for social justice or bettering the community with the, the industry that you're involved in than the restaurant industry, because I, it's kind of interesting to think about for others that might not be working as professionals and maybe in the nonprofit sector or in public service or in other areas like philanthropy, how you can think about marrying some of your passions so your values are really infused in the work that you do, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, I was in the restaurant industry for a really long time, but I have a degree in political science and women's studies. So there's that. I always had that kind of in my mind. I will tell you the 2016 election absolutely shook me to the core as it did many other people. And it really caused me to pause and, and just deeply, deeply look around at so many people that I encountered on an everyday basis had this whole new heightened sense of fear. And then I think under that, I started thinking, there have been people who have been experiencing this fear for a really long time. It's not really an answer to your question, but answering your question, I would say, how did I marry the two? I credit my friend Brady Walkenshoff, he's CEO of Grist, for putting my name in the ring as a suggestion for this new CEO of Fair Start. And it really was this opportunity for me to take all of this passion that I had around making change and really wanting to engage in policy and, and things that could change the system. And Fair Start has historically been a food service job training organization with a couple of restaurants and some cafes. And so my skill sets just really aligned there. But I think that what made that really work and what I'd say to people who are listening who might have different skill sets, wouldn't we live in a great world if every business was a social enterprise, right? And so we think about social enterprises as 
nonprofit that's doing something, but really what if the norm was that all businesses were doing good things for the world? That's super idealistic. I know it's probably not at all realistic, but for me, it was taking the opportunity to take those two experiences that I had and really kind of weave those together. And I think that's one thing that makes Fair Start really special is that we do have a social enterprise model, as do many other nonprofits from arts and humanities to all sorts of nonprofits, if you think, have some kind of earned revenue in the social service sector as well. What I really love about your path to becoming the CEO of Fair Start, also a lot of times when I share advice with younger people who are thinking about maybe delving into policy or advocacy work, I think there's always this assumption that you have to be the expert on one thing. Mm -hmm. But what I always tell people is develop your passion and develop your skills in the tool set so you can do anything. And wherever you go, you can make an impact on whatever kind of issue you want to work in. And I feel like yours illustrates that when you have the skill set, you can bring it to so many different kinds of ventures. So as a CEO of Fair Start, which is such a beloved Seattle institution and one that I admire so much, you're really honing your skills on making an impact on finding solutions to poverty and hunger and workforce development and training. For those who aren't super familiar with Fair Start, could you tell us a little bit more about maybe just starting with some of the challenges or the scope of the problem before even sharing what Fair Start does? Sure. We live in a region that had, as for those who live in around Seattle, just rapid expansion and wealth growth in a relatively short period of time. And I think what that did, and this goes back to the the 90s, but it really has displaced a, a lot of folks because of the simple disparity in income is so massive. So one of the things that was really important to the as the origin story of Fair Start was to both, if you think about the need for hunger relief and those who are experiencing the most acute food insecurity, is how do you both get meals to the community, but also shorten the line? And so when we think about that, we have weaved together and at its origin as a hunger relief organization doing prepared meals with a workforce development organization. And so at the beginning, Fair Start was founded by a young chef. His name was David Lee. Uh, He went on to co-found or found one of the biggest vegan food companies that hatched out of our area. Great guy. But what he saw as he was delivering meals to shelters was this opportunity for the folks who were staying at those shelters to get some job training and get into the restaurant hospitality sector, which traditionally has had very low barriers to employment. So over the last 30 years, Fair Start has opened, as I mentioned, cafes and restaurants, catering. We've always been doing community meals. And I think it's just with COVID that we've really recentered back to that origin story of our mission and serving those who are the furthest from access and opportunity to food. And so that's where we're headed in our future and really stabilizing as an organization our focus, but also really looking and relying heavily on the data of who is the most deeply impacted by homelessness, poverty, food insecurity, and sadly, we all know too well that that's communities of color. It kind of, I can't even believe I'm pulling this out, but it kind of reminds me of that old proverb, if you teach a person to fish, they can fish for a day, but if you teach them how to fish, they can fish for a lifetime. And I feel like it kind of 
So you know? I have to tell you, I kind of hate that proverb. Really? Tell me I why. Do. I'm not a proverb <laughs> master, so it's probably the <laughs> well, one I know. <laughs> yeah. So it had its time and place maybe, but here's the thing. Yeah. That's assuming that the person that you're teaching to fish has access to a fishing hole. Yeah. <laughs> that assumes that the person even knows what to do with the fish or eats fish, right? And so it just makes a lot of assumptions. I don't know. So for me, I have struggled with that one a lot, but Mm. generally it leaves so many people out. Yeah. Okay. We'll have to broaden it. I know. And I will give you credit. You even took it from its original version of teach a man to fish. I know. I did adapt it for gender. Yes. 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 Yeah. I tried to do my best to DEI it, but apparently not. Well, but again, these are all issues that are really, I think, front and center right now that we have to think about. And this is where, when that phrase really caught meaning in the workforce development space in the nineties, it was also at the heart of welfare reform. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's just complicated when you think about the premise behind that and really when a lot of workforce, like deep workforce was done, work was done in the 90s, it is beyond time to start rethinking that. And so that's what I'm hoping that that we can start doing and start continuing. Come up with a new one. Yes. I don't know. You and I will have to brainstorm. We'll brainstorm. So what are some of your current core priorities at Fair Start right now? We just finished our new three-year strategic plan. When I started at the organization in 2018, we wrote really a a bridge plan. It was, I think, six months after I had started as CEO. And so what COVID did was really give us a chance to reflect on what in our 30-year history, or at that time, 20-year history, had served us very well. And what were the things that maybe we needed to put to bed and where are the things that we really want to see us uh, moving forward? And so... We are really focused on three main areas. One is personal stability, and that's personal stability for our participants in our job training programs. That's personal stability for our employees, and that's long-term personal stability for our graduates. And then economic mobility, I think, you know, living in King County, I can't say how discouraging it is to see the numbers of what it takes for families to get by. And just a quick statistic, if you're a single parent with a child under the age of five, which I know you and I both have little kids, you need to make $36 an hour to be self-sustaining. If you have two kids under the age of five, you need $48 an hour. And I think that where economic mobility is so important is then you think about what federal and state programs exist for hunger relief, for childcare relief. They're only about, I think, right around 100,000 people in King County on SNAP basic food benefits. But then I think about the number of people who are somewhere between that cutoff and the $36 an hour that it takes to feed and clothe and house your family. That's a large, large number of people. And so we're really trying to close that gap and get our graduates thinking about not just food service, but different parts of the food sector, whether that's CDL driving or forklift or, you know, working in logistics. And then what are the transferable skills to those and the restaurant industry that will lead to sectors that just have greater economic mobility? And then I think the third pillar that we really focus on is that food security and really trying to reach those furthest from food access and food opportunity. And through all of these, just so important is weaving in that racial and gender equity piece to each one of those priority areas. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you what an incredibly difficult time this pandemic has meant for 
working people and, and people who are working for their families, for the service industry, and how it's exaggerated food insecurity and income inequality. How has Fair Start had to adapt during this current pandemic to meet all of these challenges? Well, for context, I will say prior to the pandemic, we were producing about 950,000 meals a year that would go to local shelters, early childhood education centers, Head Start programs, some mental health and behavioral health locations. Since the pandemic, we have November 29th. To the date of this recording, we've done about 3.8 million meals since the pandemic. So we've just seen this huge, huge insurgence of need around hunger relief. I think the other really exciting way that we've adapted is through the delivery of our job training. So prior to COVID, our participants would come in and spend 16 weeks doing a combination of classroom time and kitchen time. And we've been able to really pivot that to provide virtual job training, whereas prior to COVID, students would graduate and leave with a set of chef knives. Now students are leaving their seven-week virtual training and keeping the laptop that we provide them with. And we've had some great technology partners who have helped us get Wi-Fi access to those who are in shelters who may need it. And so that will carry forward. We'll maintain some of this virtual training, which covers financial literacy, self-empowerment, all the soft skills, those human skills that come into play when, when you're trying to get a job and keep a job. And then in 2022, we'll be bringing our participants back on site for paid internships. And so I think we've really adapted in all the ways that we needed to just to survive. But then I think further ways that we're adapting to thrive are making sure that our students from day one are receiving some level of income or some level of financial support to help ground them immediately and get them, you know, that one step closer to maybe living not in a congregate shelter, but in transitional housing and then eventually their own housing. That's amazing. Do you anticipate Fair Start's restaurants? Are they open now or will they be reopening soon? So our cafe in South Lake Union is open. We're hoping to get our cafe on Beacon Hill open sometime in early next year-ish. 2022, we will reopen the Fair Start restaurant, but I think we want to do it in a way that really incorporates more training than we had before. And for those who have never been to Fair Start, it's a wonderful restaurant, open for lunch, down at the corner of 7th and Virginia in downtown Seattle. And previous to COVID, all of our program participants were only working in the kitchen. And this has been sort of a 10-year-long incremental change for me to get more folks working in the front of the house, in the dining room, because there's a huge income disparity between front of the house and back of the house, which is what the nomenclature in the restaurant world. And so when we reopen the restaurant, I really look forward to seeing so many more of our participants being those really working in the dining room, understanding that customer service. There's so much opportunity for transferable skills there. And then just really deepening the way that we're working with students in our kitchens as well. So they'll be back. The great thing is, is we are able to have double the mission reach with hunger relief and job training and still have that, I think, lovely community benefit for our, our patrons. And then I'd love to see the Fair Start restaurant doing more actual you know, in the community, serving the community events where we can have more kind of community style dinners at our site. So just waiting for things to get feel a little bit more safe on the COVID front first. Well, that's amazing that even in a time of 
restrictiveness and challenge? I mean, it sounds like you've been able to soar and not only do really important work and update what you're doing, but also modify for the future and hopefully really expand and grow what you're doing. And speaking of something you mentioned earlier around, I guess, your own particular reflections on racism and the mistreatment of others, but also how communities of color are so deeply impacted by inequities, whether it's in the service industry or whatever industry that we're talking about, as you've done your strategic plan and and you're thinking about the future, how has Fair Start been prioritizing the issue of equity in a time where so many people, companies, organizations, and individuals are really grappling with how to better tackle the issue of systemic racism? Well, I think, first of all, I feel grateful to the entire organization, which, I mean, every single person at Fair Start has contributed to our race equity and anti-racism journey. We're still on it. We're a long ways away from being an anti-racist organization. It's a long journey. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And I think that for us, there have been a couple of important pieces that we've really anchored on. And this, again, goes back to 2018. One, just the data. Are we serving the people in our community who most need services because they're disproportionately impacted by poverty and homelessness and systemic oppression? Secondly, I think that we're really anchoring in community voice and understanding that we don't have the answers for communities of color in the same way that they have solutions for themselves. And Fair Start, what we really want to be able to do in the community is support and bolster and empower, you know, help those communities feel empowered. And then I think that for our own internal work, we have over half of our organization participating in DEI work groups. We have over 40% really active. We've diversified our board in the last three years up about, I think, 25% from of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. And I think that we just think every day, we think about it in every single everyday decisions that we make from who we're purchasing our paper products from to how we're supporting, you know, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color owned farms, businesses. And so we know that in order to reach more inclusive economy, we have to ground it in equity. I try to sort of stay away from the DEI you know, acronym as much as I possibly can now, because I don't want it to just become a buzzword. Fair Start is a historically white-led organization. I am a cisgender white woman, but I feel extremely committed to making Fair Start always be a place or helping Fair Start always feel like a place where individuals, regardless of gender, ethnicity, sexual preference and orientation, will feel safe to work and to come for resources. And so it's just a journey. It is a it is a long, long journey that is really hard. And I guess the last thing I'll say is where we are right now in that journey is We've done a lot of educating ourselves and really grounding ourselves for the last, again, the last three years. We, we started this, this journey in 2018. And I think that I see us right now being at a place where you have to start making really tough decisions and changes and implementing systems that dismantle white supremacy. And that's a hard, it's a hard task. And it's just, it takes every single member of our team. And pivoting a little to the city where we both live, the Emerald City, Seattle, we have 
listeners and we serve the entire Pacific Northwest. So we have these two really interesting larger anchor cities like Seattle and Portland that I think have experienced some similar issues and challenges over the past couple of years within this wider, amazing, diverse region. And, you know, from growing up where you did, you know, there's so much diversity in terms of geography and economics and all of those different kinds of issues. I know Seattle has just experienced unbelievable growth and many challenges that have come about as a result of that kind of growth, like homelessness and also just political polarization and divisiveness in our city that has really characterized our politics for a couple of years. As a leader in Seattle, what observations do you have about the current climate of our city and and what do you think about the general direction of where we are now and, and what your hopes are? Well, I think the thing that I would say is that we live in this Emerald City that we live in, we live in a bit of a bubble where the, I think, political polarization is between what other communities might describe as the left and the far left. Yeah. And so, you know, I think when I think about myself and, and my family who might live in Eastern Washington or Eastern Oregon, I think, okay, there's a, lo- a lot more political discourse that impacts the entire nation that we need to just be mindful of as Seattleites. I think that as as far as where things have gone in the city, are we on the right direction? I sure hope so. We just had elections. I think that our region has really taken to heart some of the big issues that came out of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery last year. I think that we are going through a sort of a time of extreme reckoning about around that economic inequality, but. For those who are listening who haven't been to Seattle in a while, we have a homelessness crisis like I have never seen in the 20 plus years that I've lived here. It's not right. We need to do better for those individuals who are experiencing homelessness because we need to stop thinking about that community is just experiencing homelessness. We need to think about them as someone's child who's experiencing intense trauma, someone's father or mother or brother or sister who's experiencing deep mental health crises, which by the way, does not care about socioeconomic status. And so I think that if we can bring a little bit more empathy into the political discourse, that's how we're going to get back on track. And there is not one size fits all solution to this because there are so many factors that lead to homelessness, including generational poverty, including racism, including the income gap, there are just so many different things that we need to to take into mind when we when we solve this. And I sure hope that we can take some of the lessons, hard lessons learned in the last few years and try to move towards some incremental betterment. Yeah. Empathy is everything. <laughs> it really um, is. Empathy is everything. So is there anything bringing you hope for a better community right now? Anything you're seeing or experiencing or thinking about? Well, I think that even though I feel like I just painted a really dreary picture, I see so much community collaboration. I see it with communities collaborating with other communities in these community-based organizations. And I honestly, I've seen it across from the larger human service nonprofits to the smaller human service nonprofits. And I think that there is some degree of Accountability, I don't know if that's the right word, for larger nonprofit organizations to help bolster those smaller community-based organizations who, who are doing really deep, amazing work. 
And so that gives me hope. Yeah. And thinking about your own journey or maybe just the people that you interface with on a daily basis at Fair Start, for other people, our listeners who are thinking about how they in their own lives can be people who make change in their own communities, wherever they live. Is there any advice that you would give people or anything you've gleaned from your own journey about where to start? I get asked this question a lot and I I sometimes feel like I don't have the right answer. I think my answer today is start with what's closest to you. That's Mm -hmm. really what I started with and then I let it grow. The closest thing to me was really, as a young college student, looking back on the lack of access in the town that I lived in, as a young mother who had experienced a really significant loss, that was profoundly, profoundly important to me that I do that work. It created a a little bit of this capacity to, to grow that empathy that we were talking about. And I think if you have, I'll tell you, if you have, if you're a skilled accountant or a data analyst or a retiree, there are organizations around this city and region that really rely and could really benefit from your expertise and services. And so I think that a great place is always to volunteer. Think about how you can lend your skills to those organizations who are doing great work. And I think that the, at the very human side of it, from the work that I do, when you see that person who might be outside of your grocery store every single day, like we are coming into the winter months, you have no idea how important it is and how special it is if you just show up with extra set of socks, an extra set of gloves, a scarf that you haven't worn in 25 years. And I think it's great to donate those to obviously to shelters and the places you need, but like I make a habit of like having some of those things in my car so I can actually give them to a person, not because they couldn't get it from a shelter, but that human connection of, I see you. I think if you're a person who cares about homelessness and poverty and, and what we're seeing, you know, with the, the really, really difficult circumstances and, and situations that our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness are living in, that's a really, I think that's a meaningful way just to show, you know, personal human connection. And then I I guess the last thing I would say is if you're a, and I say this as a white person speaking to other white people, if you have not really taken a moment to look at yourself and your choices and your biases and your journey, you know, I think now is well beyond the time for us all to start looking at how we can become better allies and um, work toward anti-racism. That is a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for sharing with us your path to where you are today and the amazing work that you're doing at Fair Start and thoughts on how people can make our community just a little better and a little more just. So thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. 